Please be seated. There are some weeks when the preacher reads the gospel and scratches his head a little bit and then turns to the Old Testament and it doesn't look any better. And that's when he goes for the psalm. It can be hard to relate to the psalms, all the militaristic language, all the kingship language, and references to farm animals, and the enemies. There's so many enemies. The psalmist is in an almost paranoid vigilance about enemies and evildoers and attacking militaries. It can be hard to relate to. I hope to suggest that while it can be hard to relate to this outwardly, we know the texture of the psalmist's feelings in Psalm 27. To be bombarded, to feel overstretched with endless demands. Perhaps we aren't surrounded by enemies. Perhaps we're surrounded by demands. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ellen Goodman once gave a tongue-in-cheek description of the model woman. The model woman, says Goodman, gets up at 6.30 in the morning and jogs five miles. At 7.30, she cooks a totally nourishing, antioxidant-rich breakfast for her husband and two beautiful children. By 8.30, the children have left for school, the husband to his office, and she's on her way to her incredibly demanding job. She is advertising director of a major firm. All day long, she attends meetings and makes important decisions. When she finally arrives home, it is quite late. After all, she had to attend a board meeting for a community service organization for which she is a chairperson. But she doesn't get home too late to fix her children a totally nourishing, organic, non-GMO supper. She helps both of them with their homework and has meaningful good nights with each. She then is able to be emotionally present with her spouse and bring the day to a close with intimate yet honest sexual fulfillment. Now, this is obviously a caricature, but I think we can all relate to the model woman on some level. We all feel demands from those around us, our culture, or our own inner voices telling us that we have to do certain things or act in a certain way or will not be worthy. These demands, this fear, is where the psalm meets us. Psalm 27 is about many things. It's about God, it's about worship, it's about enemies, and it's about fear. It's about a life assaulted, surrounded, pressured, and overwhelmed. Though an army encamp against me, says the psalmist, so demands and expectations encamp around us. The psalmist experiences fear, and I would suggest that underneath the life of the overstretched, overcommitted, is something like fear as well. Now, fear for the psalmist is layered. Part of the fear comes from a good place. The psalmist desires to spend time in the presence of the Lord, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and the Lord's temple. 
But there's a darker fear enunciated in this psalm. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me, God. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The fear the psalmist knows is the loss of identity. Lord, if you turn your face from me, if I can't worship in your temple, who then will I be? Even my parents have left me. You're all that I have. And so, too, for our stressed out and stretched thin selves, we have a similar fear. We, too, might wonder about our identity. I wear so many hats. I wear so many different outfits. But who am I? Now, we're taught by our culture to answer this question, by our performance, what we achieve or what we have achieved with our lives. If I can do enough right things, I will have established my worth. Identity is the sum of my achievements. Hence, if I can satisfy the boss, meet the needs of my spouse and children, and still do justice to my inner aspirations, then I will have secured my worth. There are an infinite number of ways to prove our worth along these lines. The basic equation is still the same. I am what I do. It's a religious position in life because it tries to answer in practical terms the question, who am I and what is my niche in the universe? On this reading, my niche is in proportion to my deeds. In classical Christian theology, such a position is called justification by works. It assumes that my worth is measured by my performance. Conversely, it conceals thinly a dark and ghastly fear. If I do not perform, I will be judged unworthy. To myself, I will cease to exist. If you feel even an ounce of this, you know how quickly demands placed upon us, identities we're asked to wear, responsibilities we have to bear. These things can turn on us and become our enemies, tempting and taunting us, saying, you have to keep me up or else you won't know who you are. This is the basic fear of the psalmist that we're let in on in Psalm 27. And yet the psalmist's fear is ambivalent. Notice, verses 1 to 10 are about the psalmist's fearlessness. Lord, you are my light, my shelter, my salvation. The psalmist is talking to her enemies as she makes these affirmations of faith. But then in verse 12, as the psalmist addresses God, it's like the leagues of fear that have gathered burst open. And she prays, God, don't leave me. I'd be terrified if you did. These are the two faces of the psalm. Lord, you are my light. And don't leave me, O God, of my deliverance. Don't leave me, for I'm terrified of the dark. Now, some commentators will tell you that the psalm is written by two different religious communities and was edited later to become one psalm. How else can we explain both the strong articulation of faith and the painful doubt coexisting together? But the key theological insight here comes from Martin Luther and his commentary on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Luther says that having no other gods means simply this, turning to the one God with both parts of your heart, 
the trust, and the fear. God doesn't just want our faith. God wants our fear, too. The psalmist offers both to God. What do you fear? Perhaps that's the place you'll meet God. Our culture responds to fear in two ways. We are either incredibly driven by it, just flick on the news, or we're given the self-help books that are supposed to help us turn our lemons into lemonade, obtaining a life free of fear. The psalmist is in neither camp. Remember, for the Jew, the beginning of all wisdom is fear of the Lord. To have faith is a synonym for fear of the Lord. Fear isn't all bad. The Israelites seem to say that fear might be one of the most effective channels for deepening your faith, provided you use it well. And using fear well means asking a critical question whenever we feel fear, fear's grip closing around our heart and our gut. This question, do I really need what I'm so afraid of losing? What is it at rock bottom that I really need? A critical examination of our fear yields deeper faith because if we knew what we really need, then we would know precisely what we can trust God to give us. This isn't just good theology. I believe it's good psychology as well. I have a close friend who struggles with social anxiety and crippling panic attacks. He's one of the bravest people I know, and he's tried every form of cognitive behavioral therapy. And he says only two things have really worked for him. The first is to give his fears a name. He names, or he calls his fears, Fritz. And then to trace the fear, the anxiety, all the way out. To go to rock bottom in your imagination. So if I freak out and panic and they have to take me to the ER again and I have to call my girlfriend to come pick me up again and I have to miss another day of work and they up my meds, okay, okay, I'll live. And to disarm it with a gracious and accepting spirit. He wouldn't say that fear is a blessing, but I suspect he would tell us how fear asks you to find an identity deeper than the one you currently have. The psalmist teaches us not to outrun fear, not to muscle fear out of our psyches, but how to use fear, how to pray fear. Not pray it away, but pray that God meet you in it and show you a self whose ground is solid and deeper than fear. Because at the end of the day, fear wants you to fear rock bottom. Anxiety, loss of identity, death. And God longs for you to have a self unthreatened by rock bottom. You have lifted me upon the rock. You have lifted me upon solid ground, Psalm 27 says. Rock in Israel's mind is God's presence. The rock is the high place, the place that gives you a view, elevated above your enemies, elevated above your fear. The rock lifts you out of a myopic small-mindedness. It lifts you into a larger, more wholesome perspective. God, the rock of our salvation. And of course, the rock also signifies Christ. Paul tells us as much in his first letter to the Corinthians. Christ our rock. What is it you fear? Trace your fear out. Offer it to God. God doesn't just want your love and your faith. He wants your whole heart, including your fears. Trace your fear out. 
It's okay if it unravels you. It's okay if you lose an identity. Don't worry about hitting rock bottom. For the rock is Christ, and he will raise you up. <laughs>